a question as we begin our consideration of the scriptures that we have before us here in Luke chapter 9 that we'll read in a few moments. The question is, how do you deal with the episodes of rejection that take place in the matters of your daily life? What is your usual response to rejection? For myself, rejection is never a comfortable thing. And of course, I wish and I would hope that it would never take place, but it does. And almost without exception, that rejection is painful to me. And it sometimes offends me, provoking responses within me that I really ought not have. But I know that if I'm ever to hope, to have, and to enjoy the kind of peaceful Christian life that God intends for me, then I really must learn to deal rightly with those episodes of rejection that I encounter. And yes, while it may often be that it was some behavior on my part that caused that other person to reject me, just as often, I find that just as often, that other person's anger, their resentment, their bitterness that causes that rejection to take place has far less to do with me personally and far more to do with that which is hidden within their own heart and soul. Here in these words of Luke chapter 9 that I'll read in a moment, we're told that Jesus knew that the time had come for him to go towards Jerusalem where he would suffer and he would die. And as he did that, he sent some of his disciples on ahead to the next town to find food and lodging for them. But the people of that town refused to receive them. Let me read those words for you. This is in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him. The Samaritans did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume those people? just as Elijah did. But he turned, Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so they went on then to another village. We're not given the details of that conversation that those disciples had with those townspeople, except Here in verse 52, as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And though it's not explicitly stated here, verse 53 gives us the probable reason behind that rejection by the townspeople. Implied within those words is the understanding that the disciples had told those townspeople that Jesus had his face set towards Jerusalem, meaning that his purposes and his intents were not with them, but were with matters that could only be accomplished in Jerusalem. 
And that was offensive to those people. And why would that be so? Why would that be offensive to the Samaritans? Why would those simple words arouse such anger and resentment? Well, as with so many of the things said to us each day, we take offense not only to what's being said, the words that are actually being spoken to us, but also those words that are left unspoken. And hidden within these words is one of those deeply ingrained ongoing points of bitterness that existed at that time between the Samaritans and the Jews. For the most part, the Samaritans were half-bred Jews who had centuries earlier intermarried with the local Gentile residents and they had commingled the local culture and the local pagan worship into their Jewish religion and into their traditions. But even so, many of them, many of those Samaritans, still remained faithful believers in the one true God. But with prejudice being what it is, and it was strong in those days between the two, and especially from the Jews, it didn't matter to most of the Jews that some of these Samaritans were true believers. They still held them in very low esteem, and they refused to associate with them in social or religious matters. And on those occasions when the Samaritans dared to come to Jerusalem to worship, they were usually treated as being of lower class or as outcasts. And for those reasons, and probably many others, the Samaritans most often chose then to remain there in Samaria and to provide their own places and their own forms of worship. But folks, on that matter... It doesn't matter how sincere those Samaritans were. There really was a problem with their efforts. A person or a group of people is not allowed to devise their own forms of worship. We want to do that, yes, but we're not allowed to do that. And to think that God would automatically approve of them or our own forms of worship just because we're sincere. That unfortunately seemed to be what the Samaritans Believe that if they were sincere, that God would accept their worship. But true worship of God does not take place that way. And we get evidence of that as we recall in the book of Genesis when Cain brought his produce as a sacrifice and an offering to God, but God rejected his offering. And why did he do that? It's because it's not what God had told Cain to do. God truly does have very specific requirements that must be met before worship can be called worship. We can't just offer him anything that we would like and expect God to appreciate us for our efforts. It's not done that way. Scripture's clear on it. But with that being said, sincerity, and especially sincerity in beliefs, is often very strong. And here it prompted these Samaritans, town people, to respond strongly to the implication that Jerusalem was more important than their own places of worship. And they were offended. They were offended that Jesus would just use their hospitality and their lodging and then quickly pass them on by. Unfortunately, these dear people seem to be caught up in that kind of quick response that you and I also often find ourselves caught up within. In those moments, 
they became filled with their own self-centered interests. So much so that they didn't stop to consider that Jesus might have other more important, more eternal purposes in mind that he had to do in Jerusalem. And Jesus did. He did. He had far more important purposes ahead of him. His reason for having his face set towards Jerusalem had to do with this foreordained plan of God for his crucifixion, for the salvation of all mankind, a plan that he and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit had devised long before time had begun. Everything was set in place. A plan was set in place. A plan that would eventually bring the sons of men back into the fold as true sons of God. The Samaritans had no idea that Jesus really did need to pass them by. To pass them by in order that he might go to Jerusalem and fulfill the plan that would even save their souls. They had no idea that his mission in Jerusalem would be for the purpose of saving their very own souls. If they'd have known, if they'd have had any idea what Jesus' plans and purposes were, they would have surely provided for him and blessed him and then sent him on his way, satisfied. But they didn't. Personal agendas and self-centered desires and purposes seem always to get in the way and drown out that still, small voice of God. And the townspeople did what their angry hearts told them to do. And they rejected Jesus, and they refused to receive him and his disciples. But folks, as I have reminded us so often on other occasions, before we cast stones at others like these Samaritans, we need to understand that the very same kind of thing takes place within us, around us, every day. Like the Samaritans, we have our own self-centered forms of Christianity. Sometimes it's a half-right and a half-wrong form of belief that we've adopted out of our own self-centered and self-absorbed plans and purposes. And yes, like the Samaritans, we really do want Jesus to stop and to tarry with us for a while, even for a long while, perhaps bringing a revival, a revival with great crowds to this church. We would love to see that. But as was needed with these Samaritans, we also have to realize that there is much more at stake in the plans and the purposes of God than just us and our small-minded forms of worship. As strange as it might sound for me to say, while we really do need Jesus every hour, every moment, and we need His presence in and around us every day, folks, His work among us is far greater than just us personally, our individual needs. He had then and he has now many other far greater plans and purposes in mind. He has plans that need to go on forward, plans that require us to join with him rather than demand that he join with us. As our church with a small membership, I've often wondered why God seems to prosper other churches with greater numbers of members. Why he doesn't tarry with us and bring more people to worship with us on Sunday. 
And perhaps we might be doing something wrong here. But that may not be true. I would hope that that is not true. It may be as simple as we understand from these words that we're reading here in this passage. Perhaps God simply has another plan for those other churches. A plan that requires a greater number of members to be at their church every week. And we should not be offended when God draws a greater number of people to those other churches instead of to ours. Those people are not rejecting us. And neither is God rejecting us. God simply has a different mission for those other churches and for those other church members. And we should be glad for them. But again, and unfortunately so, too often, like these Samaritans, we can't seem to see beyond our own personal desires wanting these pews to be filled, which is a good thing. But again, God has other purposes. We can't seem to grasp that Jesus can really and easily bless all of us just in different ways. He can bless this church and he can bless those other churches. He's not only able to meet every need that we have here in this church, he can also reach out and meet all of the needs of all of those other people in all of those other churches, even folks to the uttermost parts of the world. And His presence, listen, His presence is no less with us than it is with those other churches that have a far greater attendance. His fullness is able to be in all places at all times, meeting each of our needs. And we should be glad for that. But again, it seems that our difficulty is that too often we have small minds. We can only see what's taking place in our life and in our church. We can't fathom the greatness of God, the the far-reaching plans that He has for all of the people in this community all out into all the earth. And in our smallness of mind, we do what these Samaritans did. And we stub up and we become a stumbling block to the Lord's efforts. But listen, we need to be warned that whenever we do that, whenever we do that, whether intentionally or unintentionally, there will always be consequences. Who knows? Listen, who knows what wonders might have taken place had Jesus been invited to come in that night and abide with those Samaritans? Who knows how much they might have been blessed if they'd have simply welcomed him in just for the night? Folks, this is no small thing. Jesus is God over all the people on this earth and over all things. And His plans and His purposes are always much, much bigger than our small minds can comprehend. I do fear that those confused townspeople let small matters of prejudice. Prejudice might have been real, yes, but it was still a small thing. They let prejudice intervene and prevent them from perhaps great and wonderful blessings. But also... Further on in this passage, it's obvious that that same kind of small-mindedness is not just a problem for those Samaritans. It seemed to also be present within these disciples, especially James and John. Listen to these words again. Verse 54, And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? 
You can almost hear James and John ranting and raving. These two disciples, James and John, they were known as the sons of thunder. And one might imagine that responses like this is why they were called that. Here you can almost hear them saying, how dare those Samaritan dogs treat us this way? We ought to call down fire from heaven and destroy them for refusing us food and lodging. Now think about that for a moment. We can let our anger get out of control. Had that have taken place here, their words were spoken in anger. And if Jesus had simply said to them, go ahead, do as you would like. James and John might actually have done that. They might actually have called down fire to consume those people. And so you have to ask, was their crime deserving of death? They were unkind, yes. They were inhospitable, yes. But was their offense deserving of such harsh consequences? Why do I bring that up? It's because we tend these days to respond very strongly with anger. It's part of what is consuming this generation of ours. But Jesus warned us in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew. He said, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder but whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is even angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raha, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Things go on in our hearts that should not. In their hearts, James and John's hearts, they had probably already According to Matthew chapter 5, they'd probably already killed those townspeople in their mind. Yes, those people were wrong, but they did not do anything deserving of death. And besides that, killing those people was worlds away from the purpose and the mission that Jesus came to earth to accomplish. Jesus had come to the earth to seek and to save those who are lost. He told us that clearly. Not to destroy them, but to seek and to save those who are lost. And so then he turned to James and John and he rebuked them. And he said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So how often is it that we respond wrongly to people who mistreat us? How strongly do we respond to them? And no, we probably don't go so far as to wanting to kill them. But we still have anger, a lot of anger and bitterness these days. And we have angry and bitter responses towards people. Even if it's just those on that television set that's telling us news that we don't want to hear. We get angry and we stay angry. But is that what we're supposed to be doing? Are we supposed to be acting in the same way that we just found offensive from somebody else? Rejecting those other people just as they had rejected us. The Lord has a warning about that. He says, do not return evil for evil. Or you become just like them. And as we consider the culture that we're currently living in here in America, it seems that anger, anger has become a deeply embedded normal behavior within so many of the hearts and souls of our citizens. 
Our whole society and our whole culture is being set ablaze again and again by every new event that gets reported by our news media. And our news media is very quick to do that. They are quick to tell us how wrong everyone else is. And we follow their lead too often, unfortunately. It seems that this matter of rejection, perceived rejection, is at the heart of most of the strife. Most people today think that they're, they've been rejected for not only all of their lives, but all the way back through the history of their people. All sides rejecting each other. And much like James and John, all of those sides seem to want to call down fire from heaven upon anyone who disagrees with them. But listen, the response that God desires for His blessed children, you and me, to have towards all of that anger and that resentment that's being shown by each of those uncaring, self-centered, self-absorbed people is not one of revenge, not one of retribution, returning evil for evil, but rather it's a generous gift of salvation and eternal life. That's what He wants us to give back to those people who are rejecting us and being unkind to us. Instead of calling down fire upon people. Jesus wants to save them. He wants to save them. And again, He came for that purpose, to seek and to save those who are lost. He saved you and me. He has saved you and me, and He wants you and me to see those other people through the same eyes of love that He sees them. And He wants us to join with Him in bringing His blessed salvation To those people. And again, yes. When we're being rejected and mistreated, our first response, it's so much easier and, and sometimes even more pleasing to our ego to reject them right back. To mistreat those people right back. But again, that is not what God wants you and me to do. And He's clear in His Word. He wants you and me to minister to them. To on His behalf, to seek to save those who are lost, to give them Jesus' bread of life instead of our own angry words of death. One last thought, and then we'll close. Though we often don't know that He's doing it, Jesus is asking us, He's asking you, and He's asking me personally. He's saying, may I stop and abide with you for a while? May I stop in by your house and visit with you for a while in your home, in your daily life, personally. He says to us in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and they open their door and they let me in, I will come in to him and I'll dine with him and he with me. Folks, with those words... And with the words of our passage today, and with the words I've been saying to us, Jesus is saying these, this exact thing. He wants to come in and to abide with you and me personally. He wants to abide in our home. He wants to abide in our habits. He wants to abide in our behaviors. Those behaviors that most other people don't even see, but we know what's going on. And so the question is for us personally, will we welcome him in to come in and abide with us? 
Or will we be like those Samaritans and say no? So again, the question, will we welcome him to come in and abide with us? Now, yes, we do believe in him and we're saved. But do we allow him? Will we allow him to truly come in and abide with us and in us in all that we are and all that we do and all that we say? We should. We must. Who knows? Who knows what blessings the Lord might shower upon us if we do that, if we welcome him to come in and abide with us. So let me close with these words. Behold, I stand at the door, he tells us, and I'm knocking. If anyone who hears my voice opens that door, I will come in and I will dine with him and he with me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, such simple words of encouragement to us. Words encouraging us to do the right thing rather than that thing which we so often tend to do. Returning evil for evil and being unkind to those who are unkind to us. Holy Spirit, change us, please. Reach into our hearts. Help us to open our hearts to you, Lord Jesus, and welcome you in. We pray in your name.